Okay, let's pray, and then we'll jump into the sermon for today. Father God, Lord, how good it is to just glorify your name, to be together as a church family, and Lord, to worship you, to praise you, to give you honor and glory. Lord, as we open your word, would your spirit stir in our hearts to look more like Christ, help our lives to be more aligned with the way of Jesus, Lord, to to follow your way as you have articulated to us through your teaching, and Lord, as you have lived in your life and ministry. So, Lord, be glorified in our worship as we open your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, our campaign is called The Third Way. We've been talking about how to live as Christians in a very polarized culture. And what we've been saying time and time again is that for Christians, we just put our eyes down on the path and follow close on the heels of Jesus, right? And so we have to know the way of Jesus first and foremost, where Whereas in our culture, there's ideologies, there's groups that are constantly pulling us in different directions, and they're, they're pulling us to uh, despise the other, to be all in with one camp and all, or all in with another camp. Instead, as Christians, we have the great privilege and the joy of just following the way of Jesus, where we find alignment with other ideologies, we're free to accept it, uh, where we don't find alignment or disagreements, then we must reject it. Because the way of Jesus must reign supreme in our life. So the big idea for the campaign is that for Christians, our way of life and thinking must first be informed by Jesus. So simple, but throughout our week, as we're inundated with messaging and ads, especially this time of year, political messaging and political ads, our temptation is so much to be drawn or pulled towards one extreme or another. And in doing so, what we end up doing is missing the way of Jesus. So it is absolutely paramount for us to know the way of Jesus so well that we can tell when we're diverting from it or when we're being tempted to divert from the way of Jesus. And we must commit our life to following his way first and foremost. We've talked about a lot of stuff in this campaign. Last time I preached on this, we talked about being a non-anxious presence, being a calm presence in the midst of an anxious world. And that's actually going to be the theme for our soul care night on Wednesday during the conference, is how we can be a calm presence in the midst of an anxious culture, an anxious world. Today, however, I want to intro our time together by uh, reading this quote from E. Stanley Jones uh, in a book that he wrote called The Way. E. Stanley Jones was a Methodist missionary around the middle of the 20th century. This book came out soon after World War II. Uh, thank you, John, for turning me on to this book. It's quite good. Uh, and this, I believe, is in his first devotional. It's written as a series of devotionals that you can read however you want. Uh, but here he, he's talking about an international thinker who says, that, who says this. Uh, it is manifest that the breakdown in international comity is solely due to economic and political causes. So he's saying like the breakdown in, in civil relationships between nations uh, is, is not solely due to economic and political causes. And he's going to point to something else as the real factor or the real issue at play. The breakdown is due to something beyond the economic and the political, a breakdown in the spiritual. Because when we tend to look at what's wrong with the world, we tend to point the finger, right? And we tend to say, like, no, it's, it's the economy. It's our political leaders. It's politics. It's this. It's that. And we just spend all of our time and energy focused on that, whatever that might be. Something has collapsed there. And the outer collapse is simply an outer expression of a more serious inner collapse. So we're saying, yeah, there is something wrong in the world, there's a lot wrong with uh, national relations. That's what he's going at. 
But what's at the heart of it is an inner collapse, not just the outer collapse. The outer arrangements of people are awry because the inner arrangements of people are awry. For the whole of the outer arrangements of life rests upon the inner. People cannot get along with others because they cannot get along with themselves. And they cannot get along with themselves because they cannot get along with God. That line right there is worth the price of admission, right? It's quite good. So he points to the reality of an inner decay instead of just an, an outer systemic decay. It's both, right? But he points us to the more serious inner decay. And then he goes on to this, which I wanted to read just because it's, it may strike home. This may sound familiar to you. And if it does, this is where the hard work of examining your inner life has to come. Perhaps you have the rather appalling sense that you are not on the way. You are out of joint with the nature of reality. I love the way he describes this. And he talks about it a good bit in the next few devotionals in this series. You're out of joint with the nature of reality. He, his point is that God has created the world in a certain way. And if you aren't following the way of Jesus, which is in accord with the way God created the world, you'll feel as if the way you're living is just out of joint. It just, it's not lining up with the way the world is supposed to work and the way the world was created. You feel that the nature of things is not sustaining, backing, and approving your way of life. You have a sense of uncertainty about the outcome of it all, for you are uncertain about the present. There's a sense of futility, of not getting anywhere, of being up against it. You cannot advance in life with any buoyancy unless you are sure you are on the way. And so, if this is the way that you're feeling, that the way you're living is just out of joint with the nature of the world and reality around you, perhaps you are not on the way of Jesus. Perhaps you're not following the way of Jesus. If you're experiencing the inner turmoil that he described in that first paragraph, perhaps your life is not fully surrendered or committed to living the way of Jesus. Because as he said, that outer collapse in the world around us and in our sphere, in our world, is often due to a more serious inner collapse. But in a polarized world, instead of examining our own inner collapse, what we're tempted to do is spend all of our time, energy, our, our thought energy, as well on simply pointing the finger at what's wrong with others or with other institutions or other groups. We've all, we've all seen the <laughs> debates where, some, uh, where a politician is questioned about their moral character, and their immediate response is, to turn it around and say, yeah, but my opponent is worse, right? And not actually deal with their own failures, their own faults, their own shortcomings, and really their own sin. And because this is so embedded in our culture, I would strongly encourage you to not just dismiss the effect that that has on your own soul and your own inner life. When we see this time and time again, when we see so often people just pointing the finger when they're challenged with a fault, a failure, a sin of their own to turn around and just say, yeah, but that person's worse. We begin to internalize that. And then that becomes our disposition. That becomes our default approach when we become aware of our sin or our failure or our shortcomings. So don't neglect the influence that this has on you and our culture. The big idea, however, is that the way of Jesus is different. The way of Jesus is the way of genuine self-examination first. 
The way of Jesus is the way of genuine self-examination first. And he says so in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, he says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. <laughs> now, we're going to take some time to walk through this verse, okay? Because this is one of the most quoted and misquoted verses in all of Scripture. And I kind of get it, right? It's, it's a, you got to spend some time with this, and you got to wrestle with it, and you got to work through it. There's a bit of nuance in this text. Because usually when somebody quotes this verse, they'll usually say it in response to uh, somebody questioning or challenging their moral choices or their behavior. Usually what they mean is, who are you to assess whether my behavior is morally good or evil when they quote this? Okay, make sense? Tracking with me? When people say this, what they usually mean is, who are you to assess whether my behavior is morally good or evil? Now, that's not really what Jesus is driving at here. Uh, it, It does change the way that we approach this conversation with somebody, and that's kind of what he's driving at. But what he's getting at is something much deeper and much bigger. And we have to keep reading, right? That's, that's the Bible study 101, right? Context is king. We can't just take one line and say, well, now I'm going to fill in my definition of what I, what I think Jesus means by this. We keep reading. And as we keep reading, Jesus clarifies what he's talking about here. So the first thing to ask is, like, what does he mean by judging? Judging, this word is used in a couple different senses. Um, It can mean simply uh, evaluating or analyzing. It can also mean condemning or punishing. Now, in Luke's parallel passage, or the Gospel of Luke, he describes this teaching as well. He uses both. He uses the term judging here, and then he also uses a stronger word for condemn or judgment. So uh, I think Jesus, Jesus is kind of calling us to re-examine the way that we do both, I would say. And then he says, or you too will be judged. What does he mean by that? So does he just mean that there's a, uh, a natural order of things that if you're judging somebody, then they are going to judge you back? That's possible. Or does he mean that the way that you judge somebody will reflect the way that God judges you? I think it's the latter, and in the devotional, I'll go through a little bit more about why that is, but it's a common teaching technique that Jesus often employs. He says the way that you treat others is kind of reflective of the way that God treats you. As He, teach, he, he uses this teaching technique even after the Sermon on the Mount, or after the, the Lord's Prayer, right? When he teaches us how to pray, to forgive, as our Heavenly Father forgives us, right? In Matthew 18, he does the same. Okay, anyways, those are in the devotional. I'll get bogged down and spend too much time on it if I go there. Verse 2. So, the sense here is, don't judge others, or you will be judged by God to the same degree that you judge others. Okay? And it's, it's kind of this teaching technique that's getting you to reflect and think about, how does God judge me? Or how do I want God? to judge me, and then to think, how should I then judge others in light of that? We'll unpack that further when I come up and apply the text later. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, again, we can't just take that out of context and just go with whatever we think that means. Here's what Jesus means. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? It's kind of a humorous example, right? It's a a silly picture, right? My kids would get a kick out of this, right? If there was a cartoon video of somebody with a little sawdust in their eye, 
And as someone who often gets sawdust in my eye, it's uncomfortable. It's not great, right? Which, again, adds context to this. If you have sawdust in your eye, it's actually helpful if somebody points it out to you. Anyways, because um, you want it out. That's a big detour. Okay, so, but then the silly picture is a plank in your eye while somebody's trying to remove a speck of sawdust from somebody else's eye. Like, you got a plank in yours, dude. What's going on? So, silly picture. It's a little dramatic, but Jesus is going to explain what he means. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? Now, here's what he means by that. So, again, let Jesus clarify his own teaching here. You hypocrite. Okay? So he's after his first hypocrisy. It's hypocritical of you to go to a brother or sister in Christ. Likely, he's restricted this to within the church community because he says brother. Uh, The term is kind of like saying guys in today's culture. It can be used for both men and women, but it's within the church, right? It's referring to disciples of Jesus. It's hypocritical of us in our interactions with one another to not at least work on identifying, self-examining ourselves to identify the log in our own eye before attempting to remove the speck from a brother's eye. So it's hypocritical. That's what Jesus is after. First, and second, first take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So he's after hypocrisy and obscured vision. Okay, you will see clearly, he says. You won't see clearly if you're trying to remove the speck from your brother's eye if you have a plank in yours. Like if you're... If you haven't done the work of self-examination to explore your own sinfulness, you're ill-equipped to remove a speck from your brother's eye because you can't see. Your vision is clouded. That's what Jesus is saying here. So he's after hypocrisy and obscured vision. And then, note what he says, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Okay, so first we remove the plank, and then we can see clearly to remove the speck. So here, he's not necessarily saying that we ought not make moral assessments on a person's behavior. It's not really what he's getting at, because he still wants us within the community of faith to be able to see clearly to remove specks from one another's eyes and to, uh, to lovingly rebuke and help one another remove our blind spots, Help one another remove the discomfort of a speck in your eye. Like, help one another avoid sin. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. And so, we need to do so, though, not hypocritically and with clear vision. So, he's not necessarily telling us not to make moral assessments on behavior, whether it's right or wrong, as that verse 1 is often employed. It's not really what Jesus is getting at. Instead, do so after self-examination so that you're not being hypocritical and do so with clear vision. Good? More, there's more on that in the devotional, okay? And the focus here is, again, how do we want God to treat us or how has God treated us? Keep that operating in the back of your mind. Okay, next, verse 6. Uh, Most commentators and uh, Bible translators include this verse under this heading. It means it's under this same theme. But if you're like me, you've read this, and you're like, what on earth? Like, this is not related at all. What are you talking about? (laughs) So let's see how it ties in a little bit here. It says, do not give dogs what is sacred, and do not throw your pearls to pigs. 
If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Okay, so first of all, dogs, the concept of dogs in the ancient world was very different than the concept of dogs today. Okay, so as I was writing the devotional, I turned around and looked at my dog, who's sitting on his memory foam bed. I should have put the picture up here, whatever. I put it in the devotional. He's sitting on a memory foam bed. He's got toys laid out around him. The dog is so spoiled, rotten. Like, he can jump up on the couch and come snuggle with me whenever he wants. He's about to eat. It was like 4.30, and he knows his dinner's coming at 5, so he's like just oh, looking so cute, right? Very different concept of dogs <laughs> in the ancient world than today. Dogs were scavengers. They weren't pets for the most part, and they were kind of vicious. They would turn and bite you if, if you're not careful around a scavenger dog. Pigs were unclean. So the concept of throwing something that is valuable or something sacred to dogs or to pigs is completely unthinkable in this culture. What Jesus is telling us here is judgmentalism is forbidden in those first five verses, but also Christians are still to be discerning. We're still to be discerning people. And again, it's in the context of removing a speck of sawdust from your brother's eye. Be discerning about who you engage in this, in this uh, endeavor to rebuke, to point out sin with, okay? Because if you're not careful, you're, you're giving pearls to pigs, right? The, the gospel, the beautiful way of Jesus will be devalued or undervalued in their eyes if they aren't on this way with you, if they're not following the way of Jesus with you. So we must be discerning in how we present it, who we present it to, and how we engage in this type of relationship to help one another point out sin, to see sin, which is really helpful, which is really good. But we have to be discerning about how we do it. And it has to be completely surrounded with self-examination and how we want God to judge us or how God has judged us. Only then can you begin this process. The meaning of it is likely similar to Proverbs 9, 7 through 8, where it says, whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the, the wise and they will love you. It's kind of a similar idea that Jesus is getting at here. Now I get, I've been thinking about this all week. You guys uh, <laughs> are just hearing about it for the first time, so you might be like, hmm, what? How did he get there? It's in the devotional. You'll spend time with it later on this week. <clears throat> Band, you guys can come and get set up. Remember, a big idea for today, what we're focusing on, of living the way of Jesus in a polarized world is to start with this self-examination first. How Jesus tells us to first remove the log from our own eye, and then we can remove the speck from our brother's eye. So we're just going to start there. We're going to start with this, this first approach of self-examination and genuine self-examination. Do that first before we can begin this process of discerning how to correct, rebuke, challenge one another within the body of Christ. So instead of pointing the finger at others' faults, at others' flaws, for all the problems that we see around us, we must first examine ourselves. And this is the way of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, Jesus, we thank you for showing us your way 
for teaching us your way. And Lord, we truly believe that your way is the best way to be human, is the best way to live, because you are the creator of all things. All things were created through you. All things were created by you and for you, Lord. So God, when we follow your way, your teaching, when we commit ourselves to living the life that you have called us to, we trust that we are in alignment with the order of creation. And so, Lord, would you guide us in this process of self-examination first? That, Lord, as we examine our own hearts, as we examine ourselves, that, Lord, your gospel would just be beautiful. Your gospel would shine in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand and sing a few songs together. I'll come back up and apply this after we sing a few songs. If you guys need prayer while we're singing, I'll be in the back, and I'd love to pray with you. Lord, how good it is to praise you, to worship you. Lord, as we reflect on your grace and mercy and as we explore our own inner life. And Lord, we just, just respond with worship, with praise at your grace and your mercy, at your forgiveness of us, of the beauty of your gospel. And Lord, you are worthy of all praise. In doing so, Lord, we find alignment with the created world as we follow your way. Lord, what a beautiful, what a wonderful place to be is in your way, Jesus. So Lord, would you guide our time now? as we unpack your word and, Lord, apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat for just a few moments as we unpack the text today. Remember, our big idea is the way of Jesus. It begins with genuine self-examination. We must start there. Instead of pointing the finger when we come confronted, when we're, we're confronted or our sin or our shortcomings and our failures come just right in front of our face to our attention. Instead of just pointing the finger and blaming others, we have to do the hard work of genuine self-examination first. First of all, I have to ask, why, would, why don't we? <laughs> why don't we do this? It's a question I reflect on often. Is why is this such a struggle for me? I think there's a lot of reasons, but one I think the first one is just time. Time. It takes time to sit and to genuinely examine yourself because all of us have built up layers and layers of excuses, justifications for our sin and our sinfulness. And so it takes a long time to sit and to peel those back going to take time. And in our busy million miles an hour culture where we always have stuff to do, it's a real challenge for us to just take the time to sit and be alone with God. And that feels inefficient. It feels like we're not being productive. Time would be better spent reading the Bible, perhaps, and perhaps it might. I don't know where you spend your time doing. It's a very good thing to read scripture and learning more, filling your head with more stuff, but not at the expense of this. We have to do both. And so we feel as if we're being unproductive. There's 20 other things that could dominate your attention right now. And most of them are on your phone, right? There's lots of other stuff that you could be doing, but 
This is so vital for your life with Christ. Jesus did this. He would regularly withdraw to lonely places and pray. We need to do this more. We need to sit alone with God in our thoughts and reflect on our heart on why we do the things that we do. And then second, I think we're often afraid of what we're going to find when we do. If you're honest with yourself, it's easier to distract yourself into oblivion than to just not go there, right? Because you can distract your attention 24-7 to where you never actually have to think about your own heart and your own inner life. And so it has become like a coping mechanism for us to just distract ourselves and to never really wrestle with our own sinfulness, our mistakes, our failures. And for some of you, it's even more frightening because of the trauma that you've experienced. And so I would strongly encourage you, the answer is not to just ignore it, but to examine it. And I would encourage you to do so under the guidance of a, of a licensed counselor or medical or a mental health professional. They can help a ton with this whole process. Because what we're going for is healing. And like a good physician often has to cause pain first to promote healing in the end. We must do the same with our own inner life. And when we do so and we examine ourselves first, when we look at the log, as Jesus says, right? We gotta take the log out of our own eye. First, there's a lot of sin, there's a lot of evil motives in there. And so we respond with confession. We confess those, we name those. We tell God about those first and foremost. It's not as if he doesn't already know, <laughs> but it's helpful for us to name them, to confess them to God and even to a trusted brother or sister in Christ. And then we repent and we commit to turn the other way, live a different way. Live the way of Jesus. But we never get there if we don't first examine our own life. As I've been reflecting on this this week, this thought keeps coming back to my mind, just how dangerous it is to do this self-examination without being in Christ and without having good theology of the gospel. This is an incredibly dangerous undertaking. And I have seen so many cases where people go through this process without being in Christ and without good theology of the gospel, and it leads to one of two things. It will lead to either pride, because if you start exploring yourself and by looking at yourself, all of it for yourself, you're left with pride. It's all about me, right? And that is not the gospel. In the religious world, it ends in shame. It ends with, I have sinned. You've uncovered your layers of pride and sin and the ugliness of your own heart. And if you're living in a legalistic kind of mindset or a framework, you just, the shame just piles on. You're like, oh, I'm the worst. I'm always going to be this way. It's never going to get better. Like, why can't I kick this thing? Oh, and you just, it becomes shameful. But that is not the gospel. It is not the gospel of Jesus. 
In the gospel, when we explore our own inner life and we examine ourselves first, what we find is it leads us neither to pride or to shame. It leads us to Jesus and the truth of what he has done for us on the cross. The atoning work that he has accomplished for us. How God has saved you and credited the righteousness of Christ to you. Not by anything that you have done. So there's no room for pride there. You didn't do this. You didn't accomplish this. You didn't pull yourself to heaven by your own bootstraps. You aren't good enough to do this. You can't boast in any of that. God has done that in Christ, and he has saved you. But it also doesn't lead you to shame because you have been made new by Jesus. That you are not who you were before. You have a whole new identity in Christ when you are in him. You're a new creation. You're a beloved child. As 1 Corinthians 6.11 says that you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of your God. That is not who you were, who you are now. You are made new in Christ. He's given you his Spirit, and he promises to make all things new, and that includes you. There's no room for shame. There's no room for pride. And as I reflect on this more and more, the gospel just becomes so glorious, so beautiful, that in the secular world, it just leads to pride. And in the religious world, in the legalistic sense, it just becomes shame. But it's neither with Jesus and the gospel. Instead, you come to his grace and his mercy, his election of you, his salvation of you, and how he is making you new. And that accords with reality. It just makes sense of the world. And so if I'm right in my interpretation of this, that do not judge lest you be judged is the divine passive and is talking about how God judges us and what Jesus is doing is calling us to reflect on how God judges us and therefore consider how we ought to judge others in light of how God judges us. I'm right about that. We spend a lot of time thinking about the gospel then. When you think about God's grace and God's mercy and how he has chosen to judge you and how he has judged you by crediting the righteousness of Christ to you, by showing you favor and grace and saving you. When we reflect on that, how can we then turn and be harsh towards others. When we attempt to remove the speck from our brother's and sister's eye, which is a good thing, which we should do, we will do so with compassion, with love, with mercy and grace and kindness because that's how God has treated you. And so, from the Christian perspective, Genuine self-examination first is absolutely vital. And when we do so, we begin looking at our own sin, our own fallen nature. We begin looking at that, but then our eyes quickly go to God, to his grace, to the salvation that he has brought us in Christ, to how he has delivered us, how he is restoring us and making us new. And we respond in worship. And in praise 
And that is the way of Jesus. And when we focus on that, the way we interact with one another, the way we judge one another, we'll be so seasoned with grace and mercy and compassion as God has judged us. The gospel is just so beautiful, guys. <laughs> as you unpack this and as you sit and examine it this week and as you reflect on God, again, you start looking at yourself and your eyes go to God and you give glory and homage and praise and adoration to him. It's not ending in pride and it doesn't end in shame. It ends with the glorious gospel of Jesus and the salvation that he has brought us. And so what I want to do is just give you guys a few moments now because I do know that we live in a very busy culture, so I want to give us time to practice in church on Sunday. This is time well spent. And so oftentimes I'm guessing you're asking yourself, what do I do, right? (laughs) If I just sit alone with God, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to be thinking about? What am I supposed to be praying about? I don't know, man. When I first started doing this, I would often fall asleep. (laughs) And just being honest with you. But that told me something. I need to change the way I'm living my life. If I can't stay awake and examine my own inner life and pray for 10, 20 minutes, something's wrong, (laughs) right? So that'll tell you something if you're falling asleep. And if communion with God is of the highest priority in your life, you will change your life in order to incorporate this into your lifestyle. Pray scripture. Ask yourself important, deep questions. Why did I do what I did? What am I feeling? Why am I feeling that way? That kind of stuff. Journal about it. This is a prayer that I always come back to from Psalm 139. Pray the prayer of David. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Memorize this verse. Pray it often. And invite God into those deep, dark spaces in your heart that he can shed light, his light, in them. And he will lead you in the way everlasting, the way of Jesus. So again, your eyes begin to examine your own heart, your own life, your own sinfulness, but they always go to God and they go to the gospel. And there you find not a dismissal of your sin, (laughs) but the grace of God. In Christ, you find genuine repentance, the forgiveness of God towards you. So take a moment and do that right now. Just reflect in your own heart. Pray this prayer and ask God to lead you in the way everlasting, the way of the gospel.
Lord God, we want to be people who live your way, the way that you have revealed in Jesus. And Lord, your way is the way of self-examination first and holding ourselves up to the light of the gospel. So Lord, as we do that, as we examine our own heart, as we confront our own sinfulness, as we peel back the layers of excuses and justifications that we've made for our behavior, for our thinking, Lord, would your spirit point us to the truth of the gospel? Lord, in that, our sin is not excused. It was wrong. It was evil. We can say that. And yet, Lord, we find forgiveness. We find your grace and your mercy. We find the promise of new life. We find that your spirit is making us new, it's transforming us into the image of Christ. And so, Lord, there's no room for pride. There's also no room for shame because we are your beloved child. You have chosen us. You have justified us. You have sanctified us. You have made us holy before you by giving us the righteousness of Christ. So, Lord, we stand before you as one who is justified. Thank you for the the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us and redeeming us. All of our faith, all of our hope and trust is in you for our salvation, Lord. It is not in our own righteousness, but in you. So, Lord, as we examine ourselves and are reminded of your grace and your mercy, just draw us to worship. Help us to demonstrate a similar grace, compassion, love, and charity towards others. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing one more song together. So would you guys stand with us? If you need prayer while we're, while we're singing, Savannah is in the back. She would love to pray with you. Lord Jesus, as we examine ourselves this week, draw our eyes to the beautiful gospel. Spirit, point us to the truth of Jesus. Lord, in your gospel and your forgiveness of us, that, Lord, we we can name our sin. We can confess it. But we don't stop there. Draw our eyes to the cross, to the forgiveness of Christ, what you have done to redeem us. in your redemption and your forgiveness there's no room for pride and there's no room for our shame we are yours we have been bought with a price the blood of Christ and you are making us new you're making us into the image of Christ that we are your children redeemed adopted by you and brought into your family Lord, you have bestowed your love and your grace and your mercy upon us, not due to anything that we deserve, but Lord, just because you wanted to. So Lord, draw us to the gospel. May the gospel be glorious to us. May we be in awe of you, your love, your grace, your mercy, and yet your adherence to truth and justice. In your name, Jesus, we pray.
Amen. If you guys need prayer, Savannah is still in the back. You can still receive prayer. If not, go in the peace of the beautiful gospel of Christ. God bless you.